What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Murph and the Mage. I am the Mage. You can find me on Twitter at the Mage underscore NFL. My co-host Murph. What's up, Murph? What's up, New York? It's Murph at One Murph Blue on Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm going a little insane in the membrane in these dark, gloomy days, but uh, hopefully we can get some content out of this episode, and maybe our special guest can clear some of that up for us. And that brings us to our special guest, none other than Mr. Dan Duggan. He can also be found on Twitter at dduggan21. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. You know, if you don't already know, you are one of our favorite follows on Twitter that still do it really well. Thank you for all that you do. You're a great follow on Twitter. I appreciate that. So we've been uh, keeping kind of a free agent tracker over here on our side with Murph and the Mage. And, uh, you know, after this first tier of free agent signings, we're kind of... Kind of updated our tracker, and you know we're sitting right now at free agent needs at center, edge, vet, DB. You know a little inside linebacker depth, maybe a little competition at right tackle. So how how are you feeling about the Giants roster right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, there's still some some pretty big holes. Um, you know, I think it was unrealistic to expect them to be able to fill all of them, and for agency. You certainly can question maybe sort of where they made their investments. You know, I think cornerback was definitely, you know, a dire need. And they went out and obviously made the big investment there at Bradbury. Inside linebacker was a need. Was it a bigger need than an edge rusher? Was it a bigger bigger need than, uh, you know, offensive tackle? Uh, and then, you know, Leonard Williams was, you know, investing as, as of now, a $16 million cap hit in him was, was at the best use of resources. So, again, it was it was going to be impossible to fill all of their needs um, in free agency. But, you know, I think that they've, you know, signed some pretty good players. It's just, did they improve the team as much as possible, you know, given the options that are out there, given the resources they have. Um, but again, it was, there was no way they were going to be able to just, you know, go down their roster and just plug all the holes in free agency. So I think they did what they felt was, uh, you know, the best way to, to plug as many as possible. And then obviously you have the draft where, you hope you come out of there with a couple of guys who contribute right away. And, you know, just bigger picture, it's a building process. So there's just going to be certain spots that are going to be a little bit weaker this season. I think that's just the reality of it. And you hope you make, make some strides. And then you have another offseason with a lot of cap space, <laughs> you know, maybe another high draft pick. And you just keep plugging away. And you know, I think that's the approach that, you know, they took into this offseason. Well, as Giants fans, we certainly hope that we don't have another high draft pick because that would mean that we had another <laughs> down season. And I'm not sure if this fan base can really endure another one. But realistically speaking, certainly understand about the rebuilding blocks there that you're talking about. But now that we're at the first tier of free agency signings, how do you see these signings lining up with the new regime? Do you think that Dave Gettleman has taken more of a backseat to Joe Judge with some of the roster control? And and what has been your vibe around Quest uh, regarding, it? well, the last time you were there, obviously, with the virus and all? Yeah, so it's been, I was going to say, it's been a while. I mean, I haven't really been there since, I guess it was uh, Joe Judge's introductory press conference. Uh, or no, maybe Eli's retirement. That was the last time we were there. But that obviously was a day that was, uh, you know, much more focused on Eli than anything with with Gettleman or Judge. Uh, and then really the last time we've had any access was at the Combine. Uh, you know, where they spoke for a while out there. But, um, you know, last month or so, you know, obviously no one's been around the facility. Joe Judge hasn't been around the facility. Uh, they're all closed right now. Uh, so it's, it's hard to really pinpoint just how much uh, of an influence Joe Judge has on, you know, the players that they're 
adding, but of course he has you know some influence. I mean, you look back at just even the previous regime. Uh, you know, James Betcher certainly had a significant input on on the guys they brought in. Pat Shermer had input, so it certainly wouldn't be any different with Joe Judge coming in. And if you just look at you kind of trace uh, the background with the Packers linebackers, you know certainly the new defensive coordinator Patrick Graham had some input there. Um, you know, Joe Judge has brought some guys who were in New England with him. And guys who sort of just, you know, fit the sort of Patriots way, not to use a cliche, it's going to get overused, but guys who, you know, fit that mold. Uh, so, and that's not surprising at all. Um, you know, I think the bigger question will be, you know, maybe in the draft or just as we go forward, um, does Joe Judge have, uh, you know, a bigger influence kind of drawing on his times to England? And, and that sort of uh, remains to be seen. So my co-host Murph kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent uh, not too long ago, and I'm glad that you brought that up, was the familiarity factor, bringing in a lot of Patrick Graham's guys, James Bradbury with um, Dave Gettleman, Eber with uh, Joe Judge. Does this feel like last year all over again, bringing in a lot of the old Cardinals players onto James Betcher's defense, or does this have a different feel to you? No, I mean, obviously it's, it's very similar. I mean, since Gettleman, you know, Ben here, he's brought in a lot of Carolina Panthers, and with Betcher, they brought a lot, lot in of uh, Arizona Cardinals. But it's also, I mean, it's not intrinsically good or bad. I mean, you look at Buffalo, they're bringing a lot of Panthers up there because obviously, uh, you know, the GM and, and their head coach were in, in Carolina for a long time, where you look at the other Belichick assistants, whether it's Flores in Miami, they're bringing in a lot of former Patriots Matt Patricia loaded up on former Patriots. So uh, it makes sense to kind of go with what you know. I don't think you want to over-rely on that because obviously there are other good players on other teams that if you're going to kind of pigeonhole, pigeonhole yourself into just a few you know rosters around the league as you try to uh, sign for agents, that, that's not a very good view. Um, but it totally makes sense that, you know, if I'm Patrick Graham and I got to decide between, let's just say, Blake Martinez and Joe Schobert, well, I know Blake Martinez, you know, very well. He's exactly the type of middle linebacker I want. I, Joe Schobert, you can hear things, but that firsthand knowledge of Blake Martinez, maybe that is the deciding factor. Uh, but it shouldn't be the overriding factor uh, when you're making signings. Um, but it's just it's just sort of a natural thing. I mean, even when, you know, Bill Parcells would bounce around, he'd always bring a few guys that sort of, you know, set the culture where, where you know, each stop he went, you know, Pepper Johnson or whoever would follow him along. And I think that's just sort of natural for, for coaches to want some familiarity as they go into an unfamiliar setting. Um, but I do think you have to be careful about kind of getting blinders just for, quote, unquote, your guys. Because, again, there's, you know, 28, 29 teams that the Giants don't have intimate relations with uh, from their coaching staff. So you, you can't just tune those guys out because you don't know them as well. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, I'm kind of on the fence with the whole familiarity piece as well. You know, something that Joe Judge has beaten home the whole time is he wanted teachers on his staff. So to me, this kind of goes into bringing teachers into the positional rooms. But at the same time, it kind of feels like the old regular Giants easy way out. And, you know, these are the type of things that backfire with the fan base when they don't work out, like Kareem Martin, for example. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I'm just hoping that the, the guys they did choose to bring in are the right guys. Um, so far, so good from on me. Um, I'm a big Blake Martinez fan, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But, um, you know, given all the signings we've seen from the G-men so far, what would you say is our biggest upgrade to this Giants roster? Because, you know, let's be real. We, uh, especially the defense, was a little bit of a, sh- a skeleton crew going into this free agency. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely cornerback. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty high on James Bradbury. I mean, I don't know that he's a 
upper you know echelon number one cornerback. I don't think anyone expects that, but he's definitely better than you know whatever they ended the season with. And I think at this point in their respective careers, he's you know he's better than Janoris Jenkins. I'd rather have him than Jenkins, uh, even though maybe at Jenkins' peak he might have been better. Uh, but I think he's just a really solid guy. I like the fact that he's only 26. You know, he's just coming off his rookie contract, so you're not getting a guy who should be you know showing any signs of decline. It's only a three year deal, so. Uh, theoretically, they should have him right for the heart of his prime, and then they can make a decision in three years if they want to, uh, you know, kind of continue the partnership. But I, I thought that was just a, uh, a smart signing, a sign they needed to make because I think it would have been terrifying to go into next season with you know Sam Beal and DeAndre Baker penciling as your top two corners that they needed to get somebody. Uh, you know, they weren't willing to go uh, to the lengths Miami was for Byron Jones. Uh, but I think Bradbury is you know, universally considered probably the number two corner on the market. So I think it made a lot of sense to to go out and get him. And again, to, to the last point, you know, Gettleman knows him. So he knows he's uh, you know, a good character guy. Obviously, um, was around him in Carolina. No red flags clearly were raised. You wouldn't have brought him in. So uh, I think that was just a, a good, solid, smart signing. Again, he might not you know, ever make a Pro Bowl, but he's, he's a good, solid player at a position where they had, you know, kind of major question marks. Do you think that James was always their target in free agency or they did get into a little bit of a bidding war with Byron Jones? I don't know. that. No, I don't think they were in a bidding war. Um, I think a lot of that stuff was kind of done before even the legal tampering, you know, period starts. I think a lot of the illegal tampering obviously starts uh, weeks before at the combine. So I think they probably had a pretty good sense, um, you know, what Jones's market was going to be, what Bradbury's market was going to be and so on. So I don't think they probably felt comfortable with maybe the numbers they were hearing with Jones and they felt more comfortable with Bradbury. So, because uh, from what I understand, they called Bradbury, you know, twelve oh one on that Monday when free agency opened. So it wasn't as if he was a you know a backup plan after they struck out on Jones. I think they had already kind of zeroed in on him and, and went after him. Do you think there's much of a drop off between the two guys as far as talent and past history? Uh, I mean, you know, listen, I'm not a scout, so I mean, I think they're both, you know, obviously quality players and you know we're high draft picks and have gotten paid a lot of money on their second contracts i think the league you know thinks highly of both of them but i think if you kind of just ask around and again price tags usually tell the story byron jones was definitely considered you know a notch above bradbury so i mean i, I think they kind of sort of you get what you pay for i mean jones cost x and bradbury cost y and the reason is because jones is thought a little more highly of but uh, I mean, listen, you're not going to get the number one guy at every position and you have to make decisions. Well, if we save a few bucks here, we can spend it there. So, um, again, I think Bradbury is a good, solid player. I don't think he's, you know, Richard Sherman in his prime or Patrick Peterson, but I think he is you know, kind of a steady force that that secondary really needs. So, Dan, for those that don't know, you work for The Athletic, which is a great place to work. A lot of great writers write for The Athletic. So there was one article that you wrote for The Athletic that pertain to the front loading of contracts, which we've seen a lot from Dave Gettleman this offseason. What do you think that means for Dave Gettleman in terms of the future here with the organization and why the philosophical shift now rather than earlier? Yeah, I mean, hard to answer that question. I think a lot of it kind of comes from, you know, I've really been banging the drama. I think that Gettleman um, sort of had a faulty approach when he came in. I mean, he inherited a team that was coming off a 3-13 and season, had, you know, an aging Eli Manning at quarterback, and he looked at that and somehow decided, like, we can make a run. And even he, you know, it took him a while, but has admitted that, that was, uh, you know, a faulty approach. But so in that in that mindset, he was trying to fit guys into the cap and, you know, backload a Nate Solder contract just so we can sign a left tackle, all these types of moves that were kind of short-term and short-sighted where, you know, I think he should have been taking a long-term view. I mean, this was a team that, you know, had made one playoff appearance and whatever it was when he got hired six, seven years. 
Uh, it clearly was not a team on the rise. So I think, you know, if he had had a more honest assessment of the roster he's inheriting, say, listen, we might take a little short-term pain, but let's set ourselves up for the long-term. And I think that's what they're kind of doing here. Like, I do not think that this roster is significantly better than the one that went 4-12. and Because if you just kind of go player for player, like, is Blake Martinez better than Ogletree? Sure. But, I mean, is it significant? You know, I don't know. Jenkins, uh, Bradbury, you know, just kind of on and on. I mean, they didn't make any seismic move that totally changes the complexion of the roster. But to your point about the front-loading contracts, I think they've set themselves up to build. Whereas typically what they do in these contracts, they give a guy a big signing bonus – which will spread out over the life of the deal. And a lot of times that makes, you know, dead money charges adds up at the end of those deals and the cap hits go up as the deals get longer. Both Martinez and Bradbury, those are both three-year deals. A, so they're not very, you know, long-term commitments anyways. And again, they're both 26. So you're probably not going to see a significant fall off from, you know, what they are now. They might not get any better, but they probably won't get uh, much worse in these next three years. And they paid them a lot now in in 2020, in a year where they're probably not going to, you know, seriously contend as much as that might be hard for Giants fans to stomach. I think the fact that the organizational philosophy acknowledges that reality, I think is a good thing because listen, all right, we'll take a little of a higher hit on Blake Martinez and, and James Bradbury this year and their cap hits go down a little bit in the next two years. At the same time, the overall salary cap is expected to skyrocket, you know, barring, you know, what's going on in the world right now, the TV deals are expected to come through and, and you know, make the cap go up. So I think that's smart because now next year, let's say you've made some strides. Next offseason, you have a lot of money to spend again because you didn't sort of budget the future to try to make a run in 2020. I think this is, you know, the, that's why it's called rebuilding. It's a, it's a building process. And, you know, you got Daniel Jones is coming up, Saquon Barkley. All these guys are, you know, coming up when they're going to get paid. So I think it makes sense to, to have the cap in a sort of year-to-year healthier position rather than try and you know, jam a bunch of big contracts in and say, well, worry about the future down the road which I, I feel like Gettleman certainly did in 2018 uh, and a little bit in 2019. But this was definitely a, a kind of a stark reversal from how he's done business and how the Giants have done business historically. Absolutely. And I, I don't know if you know as much, but I'm a pretty big Gettleman guy, but I think it's all fair to agree that 2018 was a is, was a blunder and he failed. And, you know, um, this is in a franchise that uses ancient old philosophy. And it's kind of nice to see them finally taking a different approach in free agency. Do you think that this uh, front-loaded contract approach is Mars warning to Gettleman as far as the, the rest of his tenure here with the New York football giants? Yeah, well, I mean, getting to the bottom of, you know, what precipitated uh, this change is going to be interesting. I mean, again, it's hard with just no access for now, at least at some point, I think in the next week or so when they finally sign some of these guys. I think, you know, we'll get Gettleman on a conference call probably and, you know, we can at least ask him on the record and then that kind of opens the door to, you know, get people maybe off the record to, to, to further inform, you know, sort of what went into the decision making. But um, it, it's hard for me to believe that Gettleman just, you know, woke up after doing business a certain way for his whole career and decided I'm going to totally change it. I think there's a lot of factors at play. I think that uh, I, I would definitely think ownership it had to have had some say in it. Like, listen, we've done things a certain way for you know X amount of years. It hasn't been working. Uh, this is how other organizations do it. Maybe we should think about that. You have a guy like Kevin Abrams who, you know, he manages the cap, but he doesn't make the decisions on how the overall roster is constructed. So maybe he got more of a voice because I think a lot of people look at him as a potential successor. Maybe they let him have more of a voice. And he said, listen, Dave, if we structure the contract this way, it, you know, it'll be better for the long-term health. Uh, of the franchise, and then obviously Joe Judge's influence. Uh, not that the Patriots really do this method, but they've obviously been in a, a 
different realm than the Giants for the last 20 years because they're competing for Super Bowls every year. So they're not, they haven't been in a rebuild in a long time, but maybe he had his own theories. I think it's, a, I'm sure it's a collaboration and, you know, give credit to Gettleman, I guess, for not being stubborn and, and embracing a new approach. But um, it is interesting because when that's, when the season ended, it really felt like Gettleman's, you know, uh, was put on the hot seat by Mara and it felt like he, more or less, you better win in 2020 or you're not going to be back. And to Gettleman's credit, he didn't mortgage the future with, you know, his own interests in mind. He still took uh, a, a broader view of how to build this team into a sustainable winner. Now, I don't know if that means something changed behind the scenes where Mary said, listen, we got a first time head coach. We're going to be a little more patient than maybe I let on. I don't know. That, that's all to be determined because, listen, if they go out and go 3-13 and 13 next year, I have a really hard time seeing John Maris stand up and say, we still believe in Dave Gettleman. He's still our guy. So, I mean, obviously a lot has to uh, unfold before we get to that point. But I think that there is a sense, in my opinion, that there's a little bit more patience. But you know, wins and losses have a way of uh, evaporating that patience pretty quickly. And Dave Gettleman has always been pretty good at managing the cap, even in Carolina as well. So that's certainly one of his fortes. But Dan, you're inside the Giants' house, right? So I have to ask you, you mentioned about Dave Gettleman striking out in his first year here, admitting that that was the wrong approach. Do you really think that that was Dave Gettleman, or was that more of a director from John Mara to win now with Eli? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, that's a fair question. I mean, I think it's obvious that ownership you know, really wanted to make one last run with Eli and really believed in him. So, you know, again, we weren't in those meetings. Maybe Lewis Riddick came in and, and he had the 2020 version of Gabe Gettleman's plan. And John Mara said, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we want a guy who's going to try and maximize Eli's window. And I'm, I'm assuming Dave Gettleman obviously was uh, aligned with that plan. And, and that's why it's tough because, I mean, who do you assign blame to? It's not like anyone like raises their hand and say it was my call. I mean, it's, it, you just have to understand that it is a collaborative one. Yeah, yeah, it's a collaborative effort. So I mean, and I, like the one thing I will say for John Mara, I mean, he gets up there after every losing season, and it, he just takes his lashes. You know, he's he totally you know falls on the sword. Same time, doesn't do much for a fan base because okay, you know, say the right things on January first, but fans would much rather see their team playing. Uh, you know, still going into January. Um, but it, it totally wears on him. So, I mean, he, he definitely takes his brunt of the blame. Uh, I mean, I think when you're the general manager, at the end of the day, kind of the buck stops uh, with you. So, uh, Gettleman justifiably is taking a share of the blame. But, no, I, I definitely think ownership, you know, they don't say go sign Blake Martinez. But they have a say in sort of just the overall approach and philosophy. So, we're going to go spend a ton of money uh, to get Nate Solder and do all these things in, in that offseason. And John Mara is signing off on it. You know what I mean? He could have stopped those types of moves, and he obviously didn't. So, yeah, I think it's certainly um, ownership has an influence, and then it's really, I guess, the GM has to work sort of within the parameters of that to, to find the best players because, I mean, I think that's also another problem. If you're finding great players, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be as much of a blow. But when you know, Nate Solder and Kareem Martin and Patrick Obama, all these guys – uh, from that 2018 offseason, just you know, never lived up to the uh, the contracts they signed. Well, thanks to John Mara, we have the gift that keeps on giving, right? The the image of John Mara throwing that chair up in the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's certainly nice to hear Dan say that Mara's hand is definitely still in play. Uh, he might not be making all the decisions, but it definitely uh, doesn't go unnoticed that he's still in, involved and he's still signing off on a lot of this stuff. And that, that kind of goes back to that familiarity piece that we were talking about. So let's talk a little bit about some of our additions and let's start with Kyler Fackrell. So under Patrick Graham and Green Bay, Kyler produced his best career year in 2018. Are the Giants leaning towards Fackrell being that top dog in the pass rush or are we thinking they have another plan or 
is that answer already on our roster? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to come up with uh, another plan at this stage of the game unless they're going to do something crazy and go get Javon Clowney. Um, you know, I think they would love to have Marcus Golden back. Um, but going out and signing Facco right away was, you know, I think a signal that uh, I don't think they figured it was going to work out with Golden. I think Golden's market uh, has not materialized to the level he thought it would. So I think he's probably waiting for Clowney to sign. And then hopefully that sort of, uh, st- starts a little bit of a waterfall where the next tier of guys like him will, will find a contract. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't see any real way to make a significant upgrade unless, you know, Chase Young somehow falls to the fourth pick. Um, then he obviously would be kind of a game changer, but there's really no other prospect that's considered uh, worthy of that fourth pick, uh, you know, as an edge rusher. So anything after that, you're kind of just getting another Lorenzo Carter, you know, Shane Zimenez, like maybe they develop into something, but you can't count on a, a second or third round pick coming in and, and having the type of impact that at least people are expecting out of Chase Young. I mean, we'll see. Um, so no, I think the pass rush uh, is a major concern and I don't, I don't really think it was addressed in any significant fashion. I mean, listen, um, you know, Fackrell signed a one year, four and a half million dollar contract. Like I said, right off the top, the, the contracts typically tell the story of, you know, obviously of how the league values you and, and uh, pass rush is such a premium position. So to get a guy that cheap, it's great value, I guess, but it also tells you he certainly wasn't a top-of-the-market type player you know, in the views of the majority of the league. Um, certainly had that one really uh, you know, breakout season when Patrick Graham was there. I think that was mostly due really to opportunity. I believe their starter got hurt late in the season. He got a lot of playing time uh, and racked up those sacks. And then, you know, through no fault of his own, the Packers had money last year and they went out and signed Zedarius Smith and Preston Smith. So obviously, you know, his role got reduced significantly. Um, you know, he feels a lot like Marcus Golden. He didn't have the injury, but he's, you know, he's a guy who, you know, had one big year and then, you know, really didn't do a lot in his other seasons and, and needs to, you know, sign this prove it deal to, to boost his value. He goes back with a familiar face, you know, with Golden, it was Betcher and with Fat Girl, it was Patrick Graham. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a low risk signing and, you know, maybe, you know, best case scenario though, maybe he's Marcus Golden from a year ago. I, I don't think, you know, anyone thought their pass rush was anything special last year. So if you're just, Hoping to get back to that level, you know, barring some significant strides from Carter or Zimenez, uh, I think the pack, pass rush, you know, remains a pretty big weakness. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you said everything I've been thinking, and I keep saying this Ky- Kyler Fackrell guy, I'm excited about him, but it feels like it's a band-aid move, kind of just like Marcus Golden. And, and me and Major, big Marcus Golden guys, and we wake up every morning hoping that they found <laughs> some way to squeeze his contract onto our books, and we're not going to give that hope up until he signs. Um but like you said, it, it does feel like they are kind of taking the same approach with him, which kind of bothers me, but it is what it is. If Fackrell puts up numbers, that's great. But then we're going to run into the situation again where somebody's going to need a paycheck. Um, mm-hmm. But let's say like, let's say these guys are truly are band-aids. Do you think that the Giants feel like X-Man and Zoe Carter are, are our edge rushers of the future? Uh, I don't know how they could. I mean, like, I think that both guys have shown some flashes. You know, obviously with Carter, it's been two years. With uh, Zimenez, it was just his rookie year. Uh, again, I think there's flashes, but uh, nothing that I've seen suggests that they're, you know, going to become, you know, upper echelon, you know, really dominant type edge players. I mean, I think there was a really high expectations for Carter last offseason. I mean, he looks the part, and there was, you, know, you saw some, some signs his rookie year, and then it just really didn't take that leap. Uh, in year two, you know, I think Zimenez probably was a little, you know, a bit of a surprise. I didn't really think he even play that much um, as a rookie coming out of Old Dominion. I thought it would take some time, but, you know, Kareem Martin got hurt early, kind of opened the door, and, 
and again, he just showed flashes. Was not a not a really consistent presence. Um, so I mean, listen, if those guys make incremental gains, you know, maybe the pass rush improves. But I don't see any either one of those guys, you know, just you know skyrocketing to like you know that that upper tier of pass rush. So. Uh, if the Giants are banking on that, I, I think that's uh, you know sort of sort of hoping rather than you know really planning on something that you can count on happening, and, and that's usually a dangerous proposition. So Dan, you talked a little bit about the edge. We took we covered Blake Martinez. Now, do we think that Connolly is going to go into the season as the other starting middle linebacker pending the draft, or do you think that there's a chance that maybe the Giants might look at moving Zoe Carter to the middle of that field? Now, granted, he excelled in the passing game in college he hasn't done that much in the NFL and we know that Joe Judge had stressed the fact that this isn't going to be a 3-4 4-3 you know it, they're going to be flexible with their defense and Patrick Graham has reiterated the same sentiment do you think that's possible that we see Zoe line up on different parts of his defense well I mean I say this to address kind of all parts of your question there I mean I think obviously if they take Isaiah Simmons at the fourth pick well then boom you, you know sort of settle that spot next to Martinez because you know that's why you'd be taking him to be that uh, you know, linebacker with the coverage skills that they, they really seem to lack. Uh, Connolly, he's a guy who I understand why fans are excited about, but I think you have to keep in perspective. You know, it was, it was three games. He made a few splash plays, but, you know, he, he, he's a rookie fifth-round pick last year. He's going to take a little time. You add in the ACL injury. You know, I, I think obviously guys come back from that a lot quicker and a lot better than in the past, um, but it's tough to totally count on him. I, I know the Carter – kind of theory or idea has been out there. I don't really see it. Uh, yeah, I just think you look at the way he's built. I mean, he's built like a prototypical edge rusher. He just doesn't play like one. I mean, he, I think the the best case for him is to just really focus on developing, you know, his, his pass rush repertoire rather than I don't see moving him inside uh, as being the, the best use of his talents. I mean, I, I don't I don't think he's great against the run on the edge. I think if you put him in the middle, him having to shed blocks from centers and guards, I, I don't see that really, uh, you know, working out. I get the idea maybe his coverage skills um, or his athleticism could help coverage-wise in there. Uh, but I, I, I just don't see it. I mean, you look at the Patriots' defense; they they usually have pretty stout inside linebackers. They don't have um, guys that would fit the the profile of a Carter. So I, that, to me, I, I I know I've seen that bandied about you know on social media, but to me, it, it doesn't really add up. Yeah, I mean, I, I know it's been thrown around Giants Twitter a lot, and I think it's it's more of a. Uh pipeline dream than anything i think people are really looking to salvage what we can out of out of our our draft picks like zoe and x-man for me i i think that x-man has a little bit more potential than zoe and he's shown a little bit more Uh, i just i have a hard time believing that these guys are their answer at edge and middle linebacker, so I'm at a loss for words at what we're doing on the edge. But you know, something else we struggled with last year was was our coverage. It was it was horrible with a projected DB core of James Bradbury, DeAndre Baker, Jabril Peppers, Julian Love. Who do you think is going to slide down to the nickel? Could we see Julian Love maybe transition back into a cornerback role? if we possibly sign a vet DB of any sort? That's another good question because, I mean, like I said off the top, I mean, there's there's a lot of holes on this team, and, and certainly they all haven't been filled. I mean, maybe we'll have a better sense after the draft, but you know, even if you look at what they're going to have to do in the draft, I think, you know, I think we all agree that you know offensive line, offensive tackle are probably where they're heading those first two picks, again, unless they take a guy like Simmons. Um, so even if they take a, you know, a safety or a slot corner, it's hard to pencil that type of player in as a starter because, I mean, I think we saw last year – 
Uh, they tried to band-aid that position with, you know, Grant Haley and Corey Ballantyne, and it just did not work out well. Uh, I don't think Love uh, is a great option to move back there. I mean, I thought he would have been the starting slot corner last year, and in the spring and the summer, I mean, there's no other way to put it. He just looks slow. Like, I don't I don't think that's his game. I don't think he has the quickness to match up with the – you know, these little Cole Beasley-type guys, you know, running those routes uh, over the middle. So I, I I think he found a home at safety. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he transitions if indeed he is the free safety because, you know, he, he replaced Peppers last year. He didn't replace Bethay. Um, so obviously he'd be replacing Bethay this year, you know, pretty good in that Peppers role. And, you know, it'd be a little bit different moving to free safety. Um, I think you have to pencil him in right now, you know, barring some late uh, veteran addition or, uh, you know, a draft pick. But, uh, I would say he's the favorite right now, and I just kind of keep going back to my sort of pessimistic view of, of the roster where, I mean, slot corner and free safety are important positions, and they haven't made any upgrades at them, uh, so it's hard to feel super optimistic that the secondary is going to be significantly better, um, you know, even though I think, like I said, Bradbury, I think, is an upgrade over to what they had. <laughs> so... <laughs> We, we definitely still have our holes, it, it seems. And, you know, have you found it hard to talk about this roster for your job <laughs> this offseason? Because there are so many dominoes that need to fall in order for us to learn answers in certain positions. I mean, this, this roster was looking at eight to nine bodies on the defensive side, whether that's starters or depth. Would you agree with that? How do you mean? Something the Giants have always lacked is depth. So I think we can always use depth, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But even looking at what we've done in free agency, there are still so many questions for this roster. And that's, to me, that's very concerning. And, you know, me and my boys and Mage have always said that 2020 was going to be our year where we can hit the ground running and we're going to take off. And I'm slowly starting to think that that might not be the case and um you know i'm not going to set myself up for disappointment i know that but uh i i expected us to be a little bit further on as far as roster structure by 2020 is it concerning to you that we we have all these holes still Uh, well no i mean it it really just goes back to you know one of my initial points is where i I just think that they kind of spun their wheels for two years whereas i think if they took this sort of you know, honest, realistic, whatever you want to call it, assessment of the roster in 2018, I think they would be further along. And that's why um, a lot of the moves along the way, you know, that I've been critical of, it wasn't even so much that this guy's a bad player or, you know, this doesn't it, it, say a move might have helped the Giants in 2018, but was it a, a long-term move that's actually going to get the team back to being a contender? And I think a lot of those moves weren't. Like I said, I thought a lot of them were short-sighted. Um, so it's this is the pains of rebuilding. I think it, the encouraging thing is that it seemed like they do have a plan approach. I remember last offseason, so much talk about what's the plan, they have a plan, you know, all the plan talk. Well, I think there's, you know, a more identifiable plan. I think that's at least encouraging. Now, listen, they still have to go execute it and sign good players and draft good players, but I think just the overall uh, philosophy, uh, philosophy coming out of the organization is is different and more honest and acknowledging the fact that this isn't going to be a quick fix. So there's going to be holes. Like, you know, I said, like, I think free safety, I think slot corner might just kind of be weak spots and maybe some rookie or some, you know, guy at the scrap heap surprises you and, and you, you get a, a steal there, but uh, it's going to take, you know, another off season or two to really build um, the bones of this this roster back up, and, and I think it's it's obviously hard to ask for patience when again I think like the team is sort of spinning their wheels the last couple of years. But maybe if they do see like okay, it's it's 
there's still some weaknesses here, but there's some young pieces in place and, and there's some room to grow. You know, maybe the fans will be a little less restless than they probably have been the last two years. Well, I think as far as plan, I think we got to Daniel Jones. We got the uh, we drafted Daniel Jones with the sixth pick overall, and I think Dave Gettleman spilled coffee on the rest of them. So <laughs> you hit the nail on the head, Dan. They botched this from the start by not recognizing this roster for exactly what it was, and it put us years behind. And the roster is still far behind now. Transition over to the offensive line. The Giants did not pick up John Jalapio's tender this offseason. Are the Giants going to move on from him? And who do you expect to start at center? Could they put Spencer Pulley? Or do you think possibly Nick Gates move into the center position, which we've heard that he has really no interest in doing? Uh, yes. I mean, again, there's a few components to that. I mean, with, with Jalapio, there's no reason to pick up his tender because that would have been at like. $2.1 million for the for next year. They can get it for you know, half that on a minimum deal. And the fact that he's, you know, still rehabbing a torn Achilles, nobody was going to, you know, come in and sign him early in free agency. I, you know, very strongly uh, suspect that, you know, some point in the spring or the summer and closer to camp, you know, they'll quietly agree like a one-year minimum deal. Because uh, it does seem like the organization, you know, really thinks highly of him still, even though I think a lot of people were a little skeptical of his performance as a starter last year. But, you know, Gettleman still spoke about him after the season, um, and, you know, as part of the future, which he certainly didn't have to do because the guy's, you know, a free agent coming off a major injury. But it does seem like, um, you know, they still view him as part of the future. Um, you know, Pulley is still here under contract. We have to at least keep him around through camp as, you know, a backup and maybe into the season, but certainly get yourself to camp so you at least have a, a healthy veteran that you know can at least be you know competent I don't think he's any great center either but um, he started a lot of games in the NFL so at least if you need to go into the season with him there'd be some comfort level uh, you know Gates is a guy who I thought you know it's worth a shot moving him to center he got a little bit of work there you know last year in practices and stuff you know nothing significant but um, I think it was a game where Jalapio might have missed and Gates might have been the backup center whatever it was like you know he, he's gotten a taste of it I think a big problem with trying to make a big position change like that is the, the potential absence of offseason programs this spring. Uh, it'd be really hard to make such a drastic position change where I think, you know, going from guard to tackle might be one thing. Going into center, so many more responsibilities. That'd be a tall task to do, say, just in training camp if we do end up having, um, you know, a big chunk, or, big chunk or all of the spring wiped away. So that might make a, a gate. Uh, Gates transition even more unlikely, but I think it's something that should be on the table. And and then I think the other option you have to keep in mind is you know maybe they draft a guy. You know I think the Caesar uh, Ruiz from Michigan seems like everyone mock drafts him to the Giants at the top of the second round. Now who knows if he's there? Uh, but if he is, you know maybe that's the option. Maybe that's the route they go. So um, there's a lot of moving pieces there. I think Pulley is sort of the the placeholder that like sort of worst case scenario, you can go into the season and feel like, like I said, somewhat comfortable with him. But I think Jalapio gets back in that mix. I think they add, uh, you know, a draft pick at some point. And then again, the, the Gates option remains out there. Do you think they're kind of rearing up for a camp battle at right tackle with the signing of Cam Fleming? Um, obviously the familiarity with Colombo and Garrett, but to me, it, it feels like Fleming is – being brought in for competition. I, I wouldn't plug him right at right tackle. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of look at Fleming uh, a lot in the same way as Pulley. Like, if we have to go into the season with him as our starter at right tackle, we can live with it. I think that they would prefer to either upgrade that in the draft. I mean, listen, if you take Tristan Wirfs, let's say, with the fourth pick, you would certainly hope he can beat out Cameron Fleming. I've you know, been around the league for, I think, six years and, and made, like, 20 starts. So he's, 
he's not even at like Mike Remmer's level, who was, you know, obviously a stopgap measure last year. Um, so I think Fleming is ideally f- suited to be the swing tackle. But, you know, again, if things don't fall into place with the draft or, you know, the rookie isn't ready, he could hold that spot down and you have, you know, Nick Gates battling too. I mean, I think you definitely, um, you know, want to have some competition in that spot. I think it would be a mistake to just say, like, Cam Fleming's our guy. Because, again, he's never been that guy. He's been around the league. He knows Colombo. He knows Jason Garrett. And he even knows Joe Judge back from New England. So uh, going back to the familiarity point, there's certainly probably a comfort level. This guy's a professional. He would, you know, do a solid job if he's put in there. Uh, but I, I just – I would be hesitant to believe that they think he's the best option that they can have, you know, as we sit here on, you know, whatever day it is, March, whatever. Um, there's a lot of time to, to search for some upgrades and, you know, obviously the draft being the most direct path. Well, your word definitely sounds like the rest of the Giants nation. There's a lot of concern on the O-line, so I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. You're Dave Gettleman and you're on the clock. What are you doing at four? Uh, well, I'm trying to trade back. I think that's probably the best option. Um, Thank you. you. <laughs> but, you know, and, and he's never done it, so that's something that has to be considered. Uh, the, Jerry Reese never did it, so it's clearly something that, you know, John Mayer is, is not, uh, you know, someone who makes his GMs do it. So it's, it's, it would be a complete, you know, transformation to do something like that. And, you know, we talked about changing the structure of the contract. So it would be, be really turning over a new leaf if they also trade back in the same offseason. But it does seem like they're sort of embracing some new techniques. But you need to have a, you know, a partner. I, I think one thing with Dave Gettleman, I don't see him trading back too far. Like I think you got like Miami and the Chargers at five and six and um, a ton. It depends on what Detroit does at three. But maybe there's a scenario where they can just move back a spot or two. I could see him being comfortable with that. If that's how things shake out, I can't see him going back to like 18 and picking up a bunch of picks. He just doesn't strike me as a guy who'd be comfortable moving from such a premium pick to like the middle of the first round. I think he'd want to move back a couple spots. You know, maybe you pick up a second rounder or something else uh, in addition to that, um, and then maybe you're comfortable with it. But that's what I would try to do. But if you're gonna just say, listen, there's no takers, you know. The Chargers moved up to three. They took Tua. You know, there's no one else looks up, you know, wants to get it done before. You have to take that pick. I think I'd go offensive tackle. I understand Isaiah Simmons, you know, phenomenal talent. Uh, I think this organization, this franchise has struggled for so long now to just find, uh, you know, the, the next generation of, you know, offensive linemen to build around. Uh, I, I would think if all things being relatively equal, again, if Simmons is 100 on their board and, and Werfs is 80, then you, you have to take Simmons, I guess. But if it's they're both, you know, at 80 or, you know, whatever, I'm just using making up numbers, uh, I would lean towards the tackle because I think you're going to marry him with Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley and hopefully finally solve, you know, that position that's been, you know, such a hole for so long. Whereas, you know, an off-ball linebacker, even as special as Simmons might be, I still think that's a little easier to come by. I think it's really hard to to find a franchise tackle as as the Giants have showed for the last decade or so. So I think that uh, that's why I lean tackle, but preferably after a trade back because I think you'd still get your guy you want if you move back a few spots. Dan, I got a question to ask you on top of that. So my timeline is certainly filled with, and especially now with the fourth overall pick where Giants are talking about, or Giants fans are talking about taking Isaiah Simmons or an offensive tackle. Are you more of a BPA or positional value type of guy? And where do you see the benefit for each? Uh, I mean, I think it has to be a combination of the two. I think when GMs say, you know, it's strictly, you know, best player available, I think that's bogus. I mean, the Giants aren't going to take a running back at number four. Uh, as much as people always like to just, you know, stir it up, they're not going to take a quarterback at number four. 
Uh, you know, there's just certain positions you would, I mean, because the, the difference between top prospects is going to be so significant. So if we have a great, again, let's use a running back because it's such an obvious one that they're not going to take anybody there. But if you have a running back and off the tackle that are graded similarly, but the running back's a little higher, the Giants obviously are going to still take the tackle because that is a need. I mean, I, I totally understand the idea that you don't want to draft for need in the sense that you reach, you know, whether you want to talk about like an Eric Flowers pick, that obviously gets you in trouble. But if we're talking about similarly grouped players, I think teams are obviously going to react based on, you know, where's the bigger need, positional value, all those types of factors. But I don't, I don't think it's strictly, you know, this guy's an 81 on our grade, that guy's an 80, we're taking the 81. I think you have to take other factors uh, into the decision. And that's kind of like what we did in the past a lot was just go with that BPA player and that didn't always necessarily work out for us. So I definitely think a good mixture of both is, is a healthy mixture. I personally want to trade back, but I want an O-lineman and I'm just, I just get those nightmares of Eric flowers taking a top 10 lineman, man. (laughs) And I don't know. I don't know about you and I don't know about Mage. I just, I have nightmares about it all the time. Yeah, there, there are just too many fans that stick to the positional value versus BPA, and I agree with you, Dan. It has to be a mix of the two, right? Is this the best tackle available? Is this a good place for him, and do we have a need at that position? I still think that the best thing for the Giants to do is to trade down if they can find a suitable trade partner, which I think the Dolphins are going to end up playing chicken with a lot of these teams. So I don't know if a trade down will occur, but I think that's the best place to go ahead and take a tackle if you're going to. Um, just because I don't think they necessarily fit that best player available model at four. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, listen, as we've, as we've discussed, they have a lot of holes, so they kind of can't go wrong with, you know, taking a player uh, at number four. They're, they're by default sort of going to fill a need. Um, but, yeah, I, I right. agree with you guys that, you know, trading back is, is probably the best best avenue. And, again, you don't want to reach for a tackle, but, you know, these guys are, are pretty widely considered to be legitimate, you know, top of the – um, first round type prospects. So, hey, it's up to them to scout them out and figure who's the best one or who fits them the best and, and then go from there. So coming back to free agency, one of the players that got hammered by Giants fans on social media was the signing of Blake Martinez. What are your thoughts on Blake Martinez? And do you think he's an upgrade for this defense that desperately needed a middle linebacker? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, I think he's definitely an upgrade. I mean, I was definitely not a very big uh Alex Ogletree fan, I just I thought he was you know really uh, a weakness on this defense. Even in 2018, when he when he had the interception, that to me that kind of you know hid some of his deficiencies. I think he kind of I want to say got lucky, but it felt a little bit fluky. He's not a guy who's had a lot of interceptions throughout his career. Somehow the ball found him a bunch of times, but I still thought down in and down out he was very inconsistent. Um, I think Martinez, you know, you look at his profile; it's pretty obvious he's going to leave this team in tackles. I think that's a safe bet. I mean, he is a tackling machine. But if you, you dig a little deeper in the numbers, uh, it seems like, you know, not a lot of impact plays. So, hey, listen, someone's got to get the guy on the ground and, and he's going to do it more than anybody else. But is he going to be like a game changing type player? No, I don't think so. But I mean, he's very consistent, very durable. Uh, you know, he ran the defense with, you know, Patrick Graham out there. So I know they're going to put him right, you know, in the middle of their defense with the green dot. And it's going to be his responsibility to to get everybody lined up. So, I mean, I think he'll be a good player. Uh, I don't think he's going to, like, come in and just be terrible. But I think if fans are expecting him to be, you know, Luke Keekley or something crazy like that, I think that they have to manage expectations. I mean, I think he's really, um, you know, going to be strong against the run, you know, weak against the pass for the most part. And I think 
that's something Giants fans are probably accustomed to. But I do think it'll be better against the run than the guys that they put out there in recent years. So the one thing I saw from Blake Martinez um, is that he has good sideline to sideline pursuit. He may be he may lack that pass coverage, but he does play very well sideline to sideline, and he gets downhill very fast. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, again, he's he's a quality player. I mean, he does he does things well. It's not like I'm you know it'd be it'd be tough to sit here and say they just spent. $30 million and a guy who can't play at all. So, I mean, he, he definitely has some strengths. Um, you know, it's just the question is, like, I, I just the way I look at it, is he going to be like a game-changing, difference-making type player for a defense who needs him? No, you know, probably not. Um, but, I mean, it was a hole and, and he should fill it. And then you just got to, you know, find ways to, to fill in the pieces around him. Or another big topic on social media lately is uh, Evan Ingram. So the Giants kind of now have an interesting tight end room with Evan Ingram, Caden Smith, uh, Levine Toyolo. I hope I said that right. <laughs> and is the writing on the wall for Evan Ingram? Uh, I don't know. I would say this. If he was healthy, I think it would be a, a much more interesting offseason. You know, I think he's definitely a guy who – um, you know, there were some feelers put out around him with the trade deadline last year. Obviously, the Giants didn't pull the trigger on any moves. And I think, you know, I think Jason Garrett coming here might be a good thing for Evan Ingram because, you know, tight ends have been a big part of that offense in Dallas. Now, Ingram's skill set uh, is different than Jason Witten's, but just the fact that, you know, this offense is, is going to need a quality tight end. Ingram can be that, you know, as a receiver, at least when he's healthy. Um, but I just I can't see them trading him right now because I mean the the trade value is as low as it could be. I mean the guy has a list Frank surgery in December. You know hopefully he'll be ready for camp, but that's there's no guarantee on that. So I mean I, I really think that they're going to have to go into the season with him, and, and not that that's a bad thing because I mean he does um, you know add some value. I mean I know that he has his, his shortcomings, but uh, I think you let him play and hey, maybe he has a good start to the season. You sell high and trade him at the deadline. Um, or I you see personally, I would pick up his fifth year option, which they have to do by May. I know people say, Oh, I don't know if I want to lock into him. It's going to be like $6 million. Uh, if he has a great season and stays healthy, well, then you got a bargain for 2021. And if he stinks and he's in and out of the lineup or whatever it may be, you can just cut him after the season. As long as he doesn't suffer another major injury at that, at that point, you'd be stuck with him. But, um, you could, you could, you know, cut ties after the season. So I think it's kind of low risk and it also makes, uh, you know, a trade option. Let's say he's a pretty good year, but you don't think he's a part of the long-term prospects. Instead of losing him in free agency, you could trade him next year because they still have one year left on the deal uh, with the fifth-year option. So I think that's the move, the first move they should make. But it might be tough for them to swallow that pill, knowing that um, you know he's had a lot of injuries and he's going to be you know playing catch-up even this year. Because you know, again, who knows? Assuming his rehab's on track, he should be ready for camp. But uh, it's such a weird off-season; no one really knows what to expect. And uh, so they certainly can't you know, necessarily count on him this season. But, you know, I think there's no indication that he won't be ready. It's just, like I said, it's hard to count on him based on the injury he's, he's coming back from. Yeah, uh, you know, the 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 narrative on Giants Twitter, Giants Facebook, whatever it is, Giants forums is let's flip Ingram for a third-round pick or a second-round pick. I mean, I think you and I could both agree that that is completely out of the question right now. His value is as low as it can possibly be. Um you know, the Giants always like to keep guys around that are quote unquote Giants guys. For me, all of my interviews I've ever seen of Evan Ingram or any in, any stories I've seen on Ingram have been positive. He seems like a real nice guy. Um, what's what's the vibe you get around the facility? Is is he wanted there? Is he an asset to this team? Um, you know, because I don't know. I'm I'm in the middle because it's like. We can keep him around and spend the money on him, but we're going to risk that injury factor. Um, you know, but when the dude is on the field, he makes plays. 
big plays. So what, what's the vibe around Quest with him? Do, is, he, is he a well-liked guy? Is he, is he good with the media? How's that go? Yeah, well, right, I was gonna, right off the bat, I was going to say, he won the media good guy award this season, so that, that's pretty telling. Um, which, well, there you go. Yeah, you know, Didn't even know that. Yeah, and then we give that just to whoever's sort of the you know, most cooperative and, and deals well with the media. And, and usually, you know, there's a lot of lower-level guys that are good with the media. A lot of the bigger guys, you know, aren't talking as often. But Engram is a guy who's always at his locker always willing to talk, gives thoughtful answers. So, I mean, he's very well liked by the media uh, for that. But he's, yeah, he's just a good person. I mean, he's a good guy, no off-field stuff, you know, definitely well liked by teammates. Um, so none of that would, would factor into the decision-making. I mean, even if they were to let him go, um, if Dave Gelman were to say, like, this was a hard decision because Evan's a great guy, that wouldn't be lip service. I mean, he is a, just seems like, you know, a very good person from what I've seen over the last three years. So that that's not a factor. I But, I mean, the question is, is he a Dave Gelman guy? Because we've seen if – if on your contract it was signed by Jerry Reese, that doesn't offer a lot of job security since Dave Edelman came in. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's a strike, I think, against him. I don't know if, you know, Gettleman has, you know, hang up understandably about guys who are injured that, you know, Ingram, that's another strike. So, um, you know, I would be surprised if the Giants, with Dave Gettleman calling the shots, you know, give Evan Ingram some, you know, monster tight end contract. That, you know, like whatever Travis Kelsey is going to be looking to get. I don't think Engram is going to get that from Dave Gettleman. But, uh, I, you know, I think that he's still, you know, thought well of in the building. But, again, I just don't know that he he doesn't feel like a long-term fit here if Gettleman is the one calling the shots. If not, I'm sure Bill Belichick is waiting in the shadow somewhere to offer up a uh, seventh round pick for Yeah, him. that dude is lurking. Well, and, that, and that's a good point. And that's why with Joe Judge, like maybe that'll sway the, the scales in uh, in Ingram's favor. I mean, it's kind of very taboo to make the comparison. But when Aaron Hernandez was in New England, I mean, he did a lot of the same stuff on the field. Uh, I'm right. sure I make that disclaimer on the field that Evan Ingram does. That, <laughs> that athletic tight end who can create mismatches, which I think a frustration now – we haven't seen, we've heard all this, oh, Evan Ingram's going to be a matchup nightmare. We haven't seen that now, at least not consistently. Right. So, But Joe Judge was was at, you know, a place where um, they did use a tight end with his skill set, you know, and he was an effective player. Um, again, so it's funny. Everyone always says, oh, he'd be great for the Patriots. Well, they're kind of bringing a lot of those Patriots philosophies over, so maybe that does bode well for Evan Ingram. It's a good point. That's a really good point. So one other thing that the Giants fans uh, were a little concerned about is – the Giants essentially had access to an Amex black card and they went shopping at Walmart, <laughs> right? You know, Giants fans are nervous about how much money is left under this cap and how much that they actually need for this upcoming rookie class and that there's been some chatter about the top 51 rule and it being substantially less. So can you give us a little more idea on how the cap works, how the Giants might approach the rookie draft with this, when the Giants actually need to get under that salary cap? Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, I'll try not to be like a boring like math teacher with this, but it's like it's kind of become a, <laughs> a, a an annual crusade for me because I think what people do is they go to you know spot track or over the cap, they add up the cap hits of every pick the Giants have, and then just say they need twelve million dollars, let's say, to sign their draft class. The the flaw in that thought process is like you said, the top fifty one rule where in the off season there's ninety guys on the roster. Only the top 51 count against the cap. Now, you always have to be under the cap in the offseason. You, you, know, you can't go over it for a day and get back out. You always, that's why you'll see restructures or whatnot. So the teams always have to be under it. But when you're talking about the top 51, guys like you know 40 to 51 or 45 to 51 are all making you know the veteran minimum. 
which is more than a seventh round, sixth round, fifth round. All those guys are going to make in their salaries. So a seventh round pick, the Giants have four of them. None of those guys will count on the top 51 because their salaries are going to be so low. That, so you might say they're going to make 600 grand. That 600 grand doesn't count against the Giants cap during the offseason. So, I mean, the, the, the ones that really count are like the first round pick. I mean, the fourth pick is going to have a big cap hit. He'll obviously knock somebody else out of the top 51. Um, but so you, you can't just add up the cap hits and say, oh, voila, I got to 12 million. Really, the, the rule of thumb is, and, and this is something I learned from overthecap.com, which is a great resource, you basically you know, take whatever that, that gross rookie pool is. Let's just use round number. Say it's 12 million, and it's easy this year because the Giants have 10 picks. You just do the minimum salary times 10. So that would be you know, 610,000 times 10. Hopefully I'm not losing anybody yet. So let's just say that's 6 million. That's the actual cap charge that they have to you know have for the um, salary cap reason. So it'd be twelve minus six. They're really like six million, six and a half million, let's say, uh, to sign this draft class. I know I might have lost people that are not a math teacher, but bottom line is it's not the twelve million dollar number. And the easy formula is just take that twelve million and subtract uh, all the draft picks times ten, and, and you, or all the draft picks times six hundred ten thousand. And you get it. I know I, I kind of lost myself there. So hopefully you could be able to follow. But the big, I think I did a better job at the start. The top 51 rule is important. The late round picks don't knock out the, I don't know who's a minimum contract guy on this, on this team, but, you know, Julian loves contract. Whoever these low-level guys that are Grant Haley, all these guys, they're still going to make more. So the, the draft picks won't bump them out. And then once they get down to cut down day, it expands to 53, but there'll be so many comings and goings and, and so you really don't have to worry about that. It's really the top 51 that matters in the offseason. And so they have a little more space than, than people probably think. But it, it's definitely dwindling, and, and you want to have a little flexibility. I know Gettleman said he wants $20 million for the season. They're certainly going to be shy of that. Um, but you don't want to be, you know, you know within the thousands of dollars. You want to have a, you know, a little bit of a million dollars uh, plus cushion there. And, and so you don't want to get too tight uh, against the cap. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the money aspect of this gets – to be a little much for us normal guys on Twitter. <laughs> well, it's so. be- and I'll say it's it's better to I, I've written it. It's easy. It's a lot easier to see it written down. Like, <laughs> and that's what I was gonna. Yeah, as I started talking, I go, "Wow, it's starting hard carrying this and subtracting that. It gets a little complicated." But the big thing to just remember: don't just add up all the cap charges, and also keep in mind that the late round picks, their salaries are going to be lower than the lowest guys in the top fifty ones. So they won't count. So it's really just those you know first round pick, second round pick. Those guys count, but as you go further on. Really, not even a factor. And the team's plan for this stuff. It's not like they're going to be, oh, crap. Our, you know, like we got to do some drastic moves. Like they, they know how much it's going to cost. So um, it's already, you know, kind of into their budget and, and they account for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and for anybody that's listening that's confused, Dan has some content about this on his page. So go over to his page at ddugan21 on Twitter. Check it out a little bit more in text format. But Dan. We appreciate you coming on, man. I uh, just want to say, you know, you're one of our favorite guys. We love following you. We appreciate the honesty that you put out there. And uh, thank you for coming on today. And we, we hope you uh, stay safe in this weird time here in America. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. And I, apparently my wife got my daughter down for a nap. So we were even able to uh, do this in peace. So that's always good. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you to our special guest, Dan Duggan, for joining us today. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at dduggan21. Also, check him out over at The Athletic. Dan, thank you for everything. That wraps up our episode for today. Peace and love, everyone. 